0: Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman- and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self paced, comprehensive, 40 hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is your host, Mireya, and thanks for joining me today. If this is the first time you're listening to an episode on this podcast, welcome. I hope that you not only enjoy this episode, but that you scroll through the several episodes offered on this podcast and are able to tune in and enjoy several others, if not all. Hey, feel free to binge. No one's judging here. And if you're a returning client, thanks for tuning in again. Thank you for supporting this podcast. But most importantly, thank you for supporting the amazing guests that come on this show and whose stories deserve to be told and listened to by others in the field, others in the industry, and that hopefully we're making important connections with regards to our profession, all the different components. Today's episode actually will talk about a language access component that perhaps doesn't have all the fame and glory that it should. It's not as sexy of a topic as per se interpreting in neurolinguistic programming. Does that even sound sexy? Anyway, I think you understand what I'm trying to say, right? I'll be the first to admit that political science was not my forte at school. And so my guest had to teach me a couple of things on the spot. Nevertheless, today's topic centers on language access advocacy at the legislative level and the steps that were taken by the advocacy and civic engagement team over at Open Doors for Multicultural Families in the state of Washington in order to present a proposed bill that would guarantee—did you catch that?—guarantee appropriate language access in K-12 schools. Here to talk more about this experience is Joy Sebe, Assistant Director and Moses Perez, Program Manager of Open Doors for Multicultural Families. So, without further ado, here's Ms. Joy Sebe and Mr. Moses Perez. Moises Joy, I want to welcome you to the show. And uh, really, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you guys here today. Thank you for having accepted the invitation to uh, really get to know some more information about uh, your current efforts. I really appreciate that you're here today. Thank you so much, Mireya, for inviting us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mireya. Happy to be here.
0: Wonderful. Let's get started because there is going to be so much learning involved today. Today's episode is a little bit different from what we typically have because we typically have either an interpreter or a translator as the guest telling their stories about our profession. But today I deviated a little bit from that and I am bringing two people that are going to talk to us about their efforts in professionalizing the structure and the systems in school districts in in order to be able to support the language access that is being offered in school districts, right? And uh, I'm going to get into that with uh, what I mean with these uh, two guests that I have today on the show. And I'm super excited. There's so much to learn. So I'm going to begin first, either Moises or Joy, whomever would like to begin. Let's talk about first uh, your organization, Open Doors for Multicultural Families. Where are you located and what is your story behind, you know, these efforts in the company?
2: Thank you, Medea. Um, Open Doors for Multicultural Families was founded 11 years ago. We're located south of Seattle in Washington state, primarily serving a county called King County. Uh, And we were founded really by our current executive director and founder and her colleagues, um, 11 years ago to ensure that culturally and linguistically diverse individuals with disabilities, particularly developmental developmental and or intellectual disabilities, and their families have access to the resources and services and programming uh, that are available for the mainstream disability community. The open doors really started with what we call now our family support team. We operate via what's called a cultural brokerage model to ensure that we have a team of bilingual and or bicultural staff who can work with families, make a connection and assess their needs and then connect them to services, programming, and then opportunities for systems change. Uh, and uh, we have a highly multicultural set of staff speaking 20 plus languages uh, and have services to connect individuals with disabilities from birth in those early years when they're infants and toddlers to when they're entering school, school age time, youth, and then adults with disabilities and their senior caregivers to provide what we hope is um, a continuum of supports and access across the individual's lifespan.
0: Now, how rich in diversity is uh, Washington State, or specifically in this case, King County?
2: King County is exceptionally diverse, particularly Kent. We're located in Kent, our main office is in Kent, and Kent, uh, I think, boasts uh, some of the, to be one of the most diverse states in the nation. Uh, And so we have, there are some school districts within Washington state that speak a hundred, more than a hundred languages, maybe 150 languages within one school district. So our staff are highly multicultural because we, we need to be um, in order to ensure that families who are coming from diverse backgrounds are able to connect and then receive culturally responsive supports in their own language and then with staff who understand their culture. And so it's always a challenge to ensure that we're able to um, be as diverse as possible given limited funding and funding for infrastructure and all of that. But I think we're, um, we're really proud of the work that we do and we can see it in the number of referrals that come our way, the, the word of mouth um, and, and all the families who are kind of coming to us uh, to receive support and services and really also growing in their leadership capacity and connecting and supporting each other as well.
0: That's amazing. You mentioned something that uh, blew my mind a little bit, and you, you said 150 languages uh, in in one school or school district that's being serviced. You know, these are you know families in need of you know just that diver- diversification within the the school districts. And we're going to get into how you guys are involved currently uh, with uh, language access in school districts, but. Before we dive into that, I feel like we're going to have to take a little mini course on, you know, some of the stuff that that you're going to mention uh, in this episode. One of these is. Uh, terminology right uh, we as interpreters and translators as you guys uh, may be aware we need context before we could really dive into you know uh, providing our service or our rendition and so I'm gonna do that for uh, our audience well actually I'm gonna ask you do that for the audience because there's a lot that I will be learning uh, with the audience along with the audience so uh, first and foremost, Explain to us what a House bill is, please.
2: Mm, Excellent question. Uh, So within the uh, for Washington State, within uh, the Washington State legislature, we call our nomenclature is that there is a piece of legislation uh, that is not yet uh, passed into law. It's a proposed law basically. It's a piece of legislation that's submitted into either the the two bodies of the legislature, which are the House of Representatives and then the Senate. So there's a legislator, for example, that we would need to work with to submit this piece of legislation into either the House of Representatives or the Senate to consider when that bill or that piece of legislation is submitted into the House of Representatives, it's called a House bill. If it goes first into the Senate side, it's called a Senate bill. So just based on that nomenclature, House bill, for example, 1153, House bill 1130, then we know where it started. And then that kind of gives us just an initial idea of like, okay, it started. the House of Representatives uh, based on the content, then there's this whole process of like where it goes and all these checkpoints. House bill just means it started in the House of Representatives.
0: Oh, my gosh. Perfect explanation. And I got a complete visual of that. Thank you so much, Joy. Now, before we begin into what that means for uh, your organization and how that connects with um, language access and interpreters and translators, I'd like to I'd like to ask you how the conversation uh, between uh, doors for multicultural open doors, excuse me, for multicultural families and um, a house bill for language access in schools came to be? How did that, how was that born? Thank you so much for that question.
2: It's been quite a long journey with a lot of partners and uh, families really involved. This journey started with Open Doors in 2015, when one of our uh, program managers, Holdan Mohammed at the time, brought together a group of families who had been experiencing challenges with communicating with their schools either via interpreters or with translations. And so Hodan at the time organized a meeting of families with one of our state legislators, uh, Representative Tina Orwal. Uh, Representative Orwal is a, is a legislator within who represents the 33rd legislative district. And Open Doors happens to reside in her legislative district. And so that's why we reached out to our legislator who represents our constituents in Kent. And then they came together at the Open Doors office, Representative Orwell listened to their concerns. And then that's really where our work with language access began and with those families as well. And I can just picture in my head, one of the Somali mothers who really led the effort early on and then went to the signing of House Bill 1130 to turn it into law. And so that was a powerful moment when Governor Inslee signed this bill that had started back in 2015. And of course, we've been working with groups um, all the way back then, um, like One America and the Office of Education, Ombuds, Uh, Arc of King County. So we have, you know, we haven't done this alone. Certainly, we've been working together with a number of different organizations and advocates along the way and are very, very appreciative of their work and dedication.
0: Now, share with us when you had these workshops or forums, uh, you're meeting with the families to listen to their concerns. What were the concerns?
2: There were a number of concerns that were common across languages and cultures. And that's really what struck us is that it wasn't just the not that it wouldn't be important, but it wasn't just Spanish-speaking families. Or it wasn't just Chinese or Somali-speaking families. They were all independently reporting the same concerns across their groups. And one, um, one big one was um, the, the difficulty sometimes in arranging an interpreter to come to a meeting. And so that, that meant that, that, hey, maybe the educators and the school staff, um, while they're doing their very best, they need training in how to arrange that. The school districts need to create vendors and contracts with interpreters, right? So that was number one, we do, we didn't know we could request an interpreter and once we request it, uh, we're denied. So that was a common one. Another common one was when the interpreter does come, they don't actually understand the language that's required in that particular meeting. Hmm. And so for the families we serve, uh, the, the meetings are that they have to go to are extremely high stakes. Uh, many of them are special education related meetings. So those are meetings where people are looking at evaluation results, um, looking at assessment results, and then, right, all of that complicated language about uh, disability assessments, tests, And then there's a separate meeting um, where they determine based on these results, what services should the student receive? And so that is navigating a completely different system, very complex, the special education system. And then there's all those power dynamics that are involved with a parent who is not native to the country, not native to English, uh, and then the complexity of the special education system. And so the, it's really difficult to put the parent and the school staff even on equal playing field with the best interpreter, the most qualified interpreter. And so there's those power dynamics that are a challenge as well. The other component that I haven't gotten into is the access to translated documents. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the the individualized education program The document that stays with the student for it needs to be updated every year, and it stays with the student for that year, and it really defines the services and programs that the student receives and what the school district is legally required to provide. Those that document is typically not translated into the family's language, and it's a key document to know what are my rights, what am I supposed to receive, but in Washington state. So far, it's not, we're not legally required to translate that document. And so there were some, you know, we we did some exploration with some uh, attorneys that we work with within, again, a whole other section of topic, but within the language access work group and really pinned down that uh, that was a challenge as well, that that document should be translated but isn't, and so it leaves the family and the student in the dark. And when all of those things don't work, what happened over and over again, is that the student or, um, the youth with the disability, particularly if they're older and they're in that meeting, they had to interpret for their family. And so they had to say, you know, the school staff is telling, is saying that I did this and this wrong. The school staff wants you to know that, um, you know, so it put, it places the student in a really, really challenging and harmful situation where the power dynamics also between the student and the parent are switched because now the entire meeting revolves around the student's ability to communicate what the school staff are saying
0: about them. And I imagine that when that happens as well, um, the, there's a lot of information that is left out For the sake of, you know, doing something quickly or or for easiness, you know, of the student being able to, you know, interpret for their parents or something of the sort. So I'm sure that there's a lot of information even then that is left out from the facilitators or, you know, the school staff, uh, not to mention, of course, the poor student that is being utilized as an interpreter with terminology that he's or she is probably unfamiliar with so yeah that that we've seen unfortunately time and time again explain to us what happens now just to paint a picture of you know from the onset of this conversation to beginning to you know look into what are the possibilities or the potentials what happened next after that it was a long journey the first
2: challenge um, was to to help people understand what language access between the parent or the family and the school was. And so um, there was a lot of time spent, for example, talking to legislators or talking to anyone and saying, this is for communication between the family and the school. Because when people think about students and schools and language, they immediately went into English language learners. And they said, well, we already have English language learner programs. We've solved that. And so then we had to go back and say, it's not about communication between a student and the school. It's about the family and the school. Many times the student speaks English, but the family needs to be a part of the decision-making process. So that was really the first Step on that education. Uh, And that that took a long time.
0: Yeah, I can actually relate from personal experience how long that can take in terms of just being able to educate, you know, and create this awareness of the different roles that the interpreting piece has as opposed to the translation piece or the translator piece. Um, And just being able to get people used to requesting the correct service that is needed. Took some time, <laughs> so that that was a very basic example of you know needing to create awareness within a school system of the type of service that is needed. Um, so you you have these conversations. We know how difficult it is because that's unfortunately the type of response that's quite typical of I think an education system that is not very familiar with you know what. Uh, language access actually is, so years go by, but at some point there is a breakthrough because you you end up with a report right now does, does the report come in before or after there's a presentation of the bill? Are you referring to the the language access workgroups report or yes.
2: okay the, uh, I see the the bill. Doesn't need a report. Um, it what um, in this case, we were fortunate that we had a report for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bill would actually not need a, a report. It would just require a conversation between the constituent or some citizen and then the legislate, legislator to submit the bill. But in this, in our particular case, uh requesting meaningful legislation, and by meaningful, I mean legislation that's actually going to change what families are experiencing systemically, Um, that requires um, some really comprehensive conversations and recommendations where people in different, who sit in different places within the school system are all talking sharing the barriers and then all agreeing on a set of recommendations. And so that report um, was really was really the backbone for House Bill 1153. And if if I think that lended credibility um, for a number of reasons, one reason is because it was written and then published by our what we call our state, Education Agency in Washington State. It's called the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction. Mm -hmm. And OSPI is the acronym. OSPI guides all of our school districts. I think it's 295 of our school districts over Washington State. And so the fact that these recommendations are coming from OSPI that have the ability to hold back funding to school districts if they're not compliant. That carried weight for legislators to say, okay, it's a collaboration of the community, of families, of administrators, and it has OSPI's backing.
0: Wow. Let's get into then, uh, walk us through the uh, legislative process for the adoption of uh, a House bill, because I personally when I came across the language which was just the title of the Haspa was what caught my attention as soon as I went in and I, I had no idea where to begin. I've never I've never seen what I I call the back end part of that, right? Like you uh were part of maybe the conversations or the little pieces that maybe we watch on a news or an article that we read, you know, but when I walked or went in there I really didn't know what I was looking at or looking for. So explain to us that we don't really know that back end. What is the process for the adoption of a house bill? You mentioned House Bill 1130. What was that and and its process, please?
2: Thank you very much. This is uh, not as complicated a process as it looks visually and can be explained. (laughs) Um, so I will do my best to simplify it. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, the any legislation that is proposed to the Washington state legislature has to jump through a number of hurdles before it gets to the governor's desk to sign. Mm-hmm. And so it first needs to go. If it's introduced into the House, then it needs to go through the all of the checkpoints in the House. And then get passed by the House and then get sent to the Senate, go through all of the same checkpoints in the Senate. And then the House and the Senate then need to, you know, convene and then pass it again before it goes over to the governor's office. If we go into more of the details, um, there are within, if we look in just into the House, into the House of Representatives the legislators are divided into little clusters. They're they're called committees based on topic. And so if this is a piece of legislation that is related to education, then it goes to what's called the House Education Committee. And they're the experts about education related uh, legislation. And so they discuss it, read through it, um, see if they wanna make any changes and then vote and then pass. And so then what happens next, before it could even be voted on, is that it has to go into the committee that holds the purse strings that determine if we're going to commit money to the legislation. And so that's the basically the House Finance Committee. In our state, it's called the House Appropriations Committee. Mm. And so that's a big hurdle to pass through because a lot of legislators, um, are trying to figure out, okay, well, that's that's when the negotiation comes in, right? That if it's like, okay, are we going to pay for this? or are we going to pay for this? This is expensive. What are you willing to sacrifice in yeah. order to get this through? So then after that, it goes to what's called the Rules committee. And the Rules committee is usually where uh, it's we say bills go to die. So it it goes there. It's a little bit of a black box. Essentially, we need to get it out of there as soon as possible to kick it out of there so it doesn't die in the rules committee. The conversations there are not open to the public. So we don't know what's happening there. Uh, There's a lot of power in the rules committee. And then if it gets out of rules, then it goes to the. all of the representatives within the House of Representatives, and then they can vote and pass it out. And then if it leaves House and goes to the Senate, it goes through the same process. So Senate Education Committee, Senate Finance Committee, it's called Ways and Means, Senate Rules Committee passes the Senate, then has to go and pass House and Senate together as another checkpoint. And then when it does that, then the governor gets it um, on his or her desk, and can decide, I'm going to veto this, I'm going to partially veto this, or I'm going to pass it. So there's all of
0: these hurdles to get
2: anything passed. If it costs money, it's that
0: much harder. I'm curious, during these processes, is it kicked back at any point to change any of the the text or any of the terminology used or any of the approaches um, you know and then you have to come back and do you start all over or do you start where you left off
2: that's an excellent question media um, so that is um if that, there's a whole process for changing legislation and it, they're called amendments to legislation so at any point any legislator can uh in that committee particularly, can request an amendment to a piece of legislation. So say you start off with something that looks like A, B, and C, then they change it to one, two, and three, right? They amend it to make it something else. And it can morph into a completely different bill by the time it's passed any one of the committees. But it still has to make its way through that process And so when it passes the Senate, when it passes the House, it can look completely different by the time it gets to the Senate. And then it can look completely different by the time it passes the Senate. And so that's why you have that final checkpoint. Now, then when it when the bill passes the Senate. Then it needs to go be returned to the House side where the legislators within the House of Representatives review it and say, "Okay, do we like how it's changed? Do we want to change it back? Right. So there's this um, there's this review. And then that's when we can add new amendments to the legislation or the bill and then get it to a point. Where both the House and the Senate can agree on a version. And then once that's done, then it gets sent to the floor of the Washington State Legislature so that they can all vote together on it.
0: Now, when I saw it, I believe I saw it um, as HB uh, 1153. So why did it change from 1130 or 1130 to 1153? Help us understand that process. Thank you, excellent question, Midea. Um,
2: HB House Bill 1130 and 1153 were actually completely different bills. House Bill 1130 was um, passed in 2019 and it recommended two or it required two uh, components. One was the formation of the Washington State Language Access Work Group. That was that convening of educators, family, community members, interpreters, interpreter union representatives, um, language access experts. And so that was that work group that came together to form the report of recommendations and then now we had this language access work group recommendations report, and so then in 2019, you know that HB 1130 passed. Language access work group was mandated in 2019 and 2020. The language access work group met, and then in 2021 is when House Bill 1153 went through the legislature and 1153 would have mandated the implementation of the work group's recommendations. So it was like this comprehensive, okay, now we have all of these recommendations and we're going to put it into a bill and mandate these expert recommendations. And so that's what 1153 was.
0: And uh, talk to us a little bit about um, 1153 because that's like I said, when I first um, came across um, this this verbiage and this document itself, um, it was by that time 1153 and it did have to do with uh, language access uh, in school districts. More than anything though, it really created it outlined uh, an infrastructure for school districts to follow to provide meaningful, language access, and I say meaningful because it's more than just uh, ensuring that parents have, you know, that that connection with someone that is speaking their language, right? There's, I mean, there's a whole robust system uh, and systems of support that are outlined in the document, including training, including a coordinator to ensure language access. So, um, I, I I'd like to, for those people that have not yet seen the document, I'd like if you can share a little bit about what that document entailed hey before we continue let me tell you a little bit about the hls education terms online glossary the hls education terms online glossary provides easy access to the spanish translation of educational terms no more shuffling through countless glossaries The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30 day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. Yes, so
2: 1153, um, that was really um, a comprehensive package of recommendations that included um, that OSPI, again, the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, create what's called a technical assistance program that would uh, draft all of this guidance to school districts on these are the rights of families. This is how you can arrange an interpreter. This is an example of a language access plan. All of those components on what we would recommend to ensure that families have access to qualified interpreters and translations. There was another component that uh, really focused on staffing for language access coordinators, and so that was the 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 I think the most meaningful part of 1153, and that was also the most challenging part to get it passed because if you think new staffing for schools that costs money, and then it also requires schools across. Uh, you know, Washington State that really have a diverse student population to bring these language access coordinators in. And so our vision was that there would be language access coordinators and we had a job description planned out that would be um, placed or prioritized in 1153 based on certain criteria. So our criteria for 1153, again, we needed a negotiation, right? It couldn't just be all school districts. It had to be, okay, well, where are we going to start? And so what we said we're going to start in is there were going to be two criteria. One was going to be school districts or local education agencies or LEAs. So it would include charter schools Hmm. that had 75 or more languages spoken in that school district. And so there were a handful of schools in Washington state that fit that criteria uh, that they would be either required to hire a language access coordinator or, and this is the negotiation, right? We wanted it to be required, but we couldn't get it to that stage yet. And so it was, or if you're not going to do that, that, then collect documentation, collect or document the number of staff time it takes to coordinate language access in your school district. So we have an idea, we're starting to gather evidence on, okay, well, how much time does it actually take in your school district then to coordinate language access? And then if it takes that much time, wouldn't it be better to hire someone to do it? And so the first again I said there were two, two criteria. The first one was that 75 or more languages spoken in a school district and then the second one was 50% or more of students in the school district qualified for English language learner services. And so that's a pretty high threshold. Yeah. And so if we think if there are 50% of students who are English language learners, there's a higher percentage of families who are English language learners and would need access. Because as we know, uh, a a youth who speaks English may have a family member who would require language access. And so um, those were really kind of the, the big components of 1153. And I think what was the most challenging for us to negotiate was the
0: language access coordinator component? It, because it's the one that's uh directly tied with additional funds, correct? Where they would have to come up with funds in order to... Uh, finance that particular role, especially I, I think if it's going to be something that is uh, a continuous role, something that has that, you know, the presence has to be uh, just continuous with the school district to ensure the continuance of the language access plan, I imagine. So um, and the money situation is always the issue, correct? It's particularly with these conversations with language access. Typically, it does it stops uh, with the funding piece, Joy or Moses, what happened with HB eleven fifty
1: three? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go. Thank you for that question, Midaya. Um I do want to say from the onset that for all the interpreters and translators out there that might be working with nonprofits um, or other community organizations, community based organizations, to attempt to um, some create and submit a bill like this, a House bill or a Senate bill, whichever um, entry, entry door you decide is to um, prepare yourself for a long fight. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's a long, should I say, it's a long war with many little battles along the way. Mm-hmm. And sp- specifically, you know, when you're working with a, a nonprofit or a community-based organization to do something like this, I'm always reminded that you know, so many nonprofits do not have an advocacy program or an advocacy department. Usually the executive director has a lot of passion mm. and they are the advocacy program. They are the advocacy uh, coordinator or, uh, you know, so and so. And we we are truly blessed at Open Doors uh, to have a wonderful executive director like Ginger, who was the advocacy uh, program at one time. And then uh, Joy mentioned that uh, Hodan, Hodan uh, also helped out to start uh, carving out some of these advocacy uh, efforts. And then when I joined here at Open Doors, uh, Joy was now the advocacy program manager. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to forget that piece because uh, it really takes a uh, a lot of passion, a lot of hard work, sometimes tears. Uh, speaking about HB 1153, uh, when we were working on this uh, on this particular bill, we were so excited because we were he- we were hearing uh, across the board, all across the state, uh, the need for equity, uh, the need for uh, being in an inclusive state. Um, This was last year, if you remember, during some of the riots that were going on in Seattle uh, and in Tacoma. uh, We felt that the bill had a a very good chance to pass because of the momentum that was in the community around uh, equity and inclusion. And so this was for us, we thought a clear cut, a clear cut um, bill in the sense of this makes sense. We want to be. We want our families to have uh, equitable education, and language access is the major piece for so many of the families we serve. It starts and it ends with language access. Mm-hmm. It's the way we communicate as humans mm-hmm. through language, through a spoken language, or written language, or sign language. And so, you know, we thought we had enough uh, partners. We thought we had enough momentum. We thought we had the right uh, terminology on that particular bill. Um, We thought the cake was ready to go, it was gonna get baked and everybody was gonna get a piece. Um, And the first step we took uh, HB 1153 to the House Education Committee. I do wanna thank um, Representative Santos. She is the chair of the House Education Committee here in Washington, that's Sharon Tomiko Santos. Um, I believe she did a wonderful job at facilitating the conversation in that particular meeting. We had advocates alongside of us, parents, youth, um, and also community-based organizations, state organizations. Seemed like we had everybody together and we were all on the same page. It passed out of the House Education Committee. And I wanted to throw a party just for the fact that it passed out of the House Education Committee but like Joy said, it goes on to the next step. It's not, it's not done yet. And when it got to the house appropriations committee, it died. I still remember receiving the call. I was on my way to Port Orchard and I got a call, uh, right around gig Harbor and I stopped at a McDonald's and took the call and I received the notice that it had died. Um, I began my morning process at that time and I said, Oh my, what are we going to do? Um, and the good thing about working in community and building coalition and uh, working with others that are in the same uh, industry is that I, I was able to call uh, a, a colleague that works in the Developmental Disability Council, Adrian Stewart, and we began to talk about why it died, why maybe it died. We didn't know at the point uh, what was actually holding it up. And she was one of the ones that helped me to uh, start investigating something called the budget proviso process. Um, I know many listeners right now are are thinking what I thought at the same time. What is a budget proviso, and what does that have to do with a House bill? Well, when a bill dies, um, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that we have to. It has to be buried completely. Um, there, there is something called the budget proviso process where you can skip the process of a bill actually being introduced and going through all those hurdles and then passing and then being signed right by the governor by using something called the budget proviso process where you submit your, you know, your, your wants or desires specifically. And it goes, uh, it ties directly to the budget and it doesn't necessarily have a bill, if that makes sense. So what we did is we took the three most important, Well, the three most important and doable parts of the bill, so I call it bones, we got three bones out of the bill, and we just wrote it in the budget proviso uh, language, or something to that nature. The budget proviso that we submitted basically pulled three bones out of that dead bill, uh, one being that the Language Access Technical Assistance Program for school districts uh, would be uh, formed and staffed uh, by the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, as well as uh, the Language Access Working Group would reconvene and they would um, basically define uh, and come up with recommendations for standards, training, testing, and credentialing for spoken and sign language interpreters. The third thing uh, that we really had to advocate for Um, was ensuring that districts were gathering information, not only on the student, on whether they're an ELL student or what language they preferred. Usually this is done through the home-based survey. But what that survey does not account for, as Joy was mentioning earlier, is what are the languages being spoken by the parents? That was never being uh, gathered or never mandated. And I I would suspect that this is the same in multiple states across our union. And if schools and parents and teachers, specifically teachers, are the ones that uh, many times lift their voice and say, we need help from the parents, Uh, a lot of the times the administrators um, of of schools and school districts talk about something called family engagement. And the reality is, is that without a language access for the families that we serve at Open Doors, there is no family engagement that is what kind of excited. That's really what excited me about, um, including this in the budget proviso mandating school districts to report. What are the languages being spoken by the parents? Because that will give us the information we need when it comes to servicing those families in those districts. You you cannot uh, build a great strategic plan on family engagement if you don't know that piece of data. So, um, we were very excited when uh, the budget proviso did pass. It did pass uh, the House. And, and, it, and it was good to have uh, champions like Representative Tina Orwell, who had friends in the Senate, uh, to submit the budget proviso in both houses or in both uh, bodies of legislature. And it was the same language. And there was already um, quite a bit of momentum around it. And again, it did pass. And so we were, we were happy to get those pieces. Um, what I also found out through the budget proviso process is that it's not just language access is not just important for schools. Um, and, and, and that's where our focus is, of course. Uh, we know that there's multiple different sectors in, 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 in our public society that uh, language access is critical in the in, in the legal or in the, in the in the legal system, you got the, the the healthcare and medical system. And usually most states have those two segments uh, on the radar or they already have some type of infrastructure because of liability. But the education sector is main is m- most of the times left out when it comes to the structure you were referring to, to, uh, to the credentials that we were talking about and the certifying of interpreters and translators for an educational setting. One of the surprises I I, I received uh, during this budget proviso process, uh, after, actually during the, the the time that it was um, uh, going through the House and the Senate. So I received a call from uh, Rocky, who is a, a fellow colleague who attends uh, monthly language access update calls with an organization called WASCLA. WASCLA is Washington State Coalition for Language Access. And I was attending one of these meetings. I was still new to this uh, particular uh, community gathering. And when Rocky heard me talk about the budget proviso, and, you know, he heard the part about the the language um, access technical assistant toolkit. He heard about the language access working group reconvening. But what caught his ear was the data on the parents, you know, what language is being spoken by the parents. The reason why it caught his ear is that he's he's actually a retired major, I believe, for the, the U.S. Army, but he is currently working with the Washington, uh, Washington State Military Department. And Rocky is in charge of, if I can try to put this in an adequate way, but when there's natural disasters, like COVID or there's an earthquake, he's part of the group that would send uh, text messages out to the entire population, but his, let's say in Washington, but his specific focus is on uh, populations that that do not speak English. And so he was having trouble and problems trying to identify families or populations in certain counties that uh, a national emergency message that's sent through your cell phone uh, would not serve them any good. Mm-hmm. So when he heard that piece about the budget proviso, about tracking the, the parents, he reached out to me right away and he said, please keep me informed um, because I need I need that data as well. And maybe we can work together. So EMS, right, and the Washington Military Division or uh, Washington uh, military department can work together with open doors for multicultural families to solve a common a common problem, even though we're in totally different industries. And that's when it, it I think it really started to set in in my mind that yes, we were working for language access in K through 12 schools, but I could see the benefits extending far outside of education.
0: Absolutely. Just
1: just what data. Mm-hmm. Just the data, with the data of the language being spoken by the parents. So that was a big thing for us uh, at Open Doors and for the families we serve. But I can see how uh, this data is also going to continue to to serve our population, our populations in multiple ways. So when uh, HB eleven fifty three again died in in, in the House, uh, in the House Appropriations, the budget proviso option was then begin. Uh, we began to research that. Um, I began to learn the language of, of how this stuff is supposed to be written. I was like you, Mireia, when I first read 11, uh, HB 1130, actually, I was like, what language is this in? And why is it written like this? And why is there so many lines and references to these other codes and laws? And, and I was like, I need an interpreter for this. Right.
0: All right. Okay. <laughs>
1: And so this is where, again, you know, if there's anybody out there that's really wanting to do something in their state like this, um, be prepared for that. But don't be don't be so scared that you don't get in. Um, We got in and it was hard and it was messy and it was frustrating. But at the end of the day, we all came out more educated. We all came out more connected to our legislators and to the diverse stakeholders uh, in our state. Because to pass a piece of legislation, it's going to be really hard to do it by yourself or just one organization, one community-based organization. It will almost be impossible, at least for to pass legislation that really makes those systematic changes that Joy was talking about. So you really have to have a coalition. Build your team uh, around the different pieces that you need to pass that piece of legislation. The, the 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 relationship that we had with the Developmental Disability Council of Washington uh, through, you know, working with Adrian Stewart was key. Um, but that wasn't the only piece. Like Joy talked about, you know, we had other organizations and other key people in different sectors of society to really make the case that this is something that our state needs. And it, if it's just one person, if it's just one organization, that they're gonna minim- they're gonna minimize it. But when it's the community as a whole, including state agencies like OSPI, uh, it makes for a really good case that this is something we need.
0: Absolutely. I think that, you know, you you've uh, really nailed a lot of very important pieces with this conversation, uh, both uh, Joy and you, Moses, with regards to just the collaboration aspect. You know, the being stronger together and being able to make those connections uh, with one another. I can see, you know, very many different components that are involved in this process. You know, from um, the the state le- uh, legislation uh, piece to the local legislations to you know, like uh, if we go even deeper, you know, just um, the LEAs or the school districts themselves and creating, um, you know, some sort of system of support. Then we've got the other side where we have the fact that there is no certification process or certification for interpreters in education. So then we've got the organizations that are working into being able to create. You know an understanding of the needs of the diverse needs of uh, interpreters in education. For there's a lot of us that are trained or certified in a different specialization, and then we come into the schools and realize the dire need for uh, a sort of of system or infrastructure, and of course the fact that why aren't there a uh, why aren't all interpreters certified why isn't there a certification process for interpreters and translators in education you know they they definitely have the the lingo required that not very many people are familiar with and of course all the other legal components right um, and of course the, the the training aspect for interpreters in education that's specifically designed for interpreters uh, in education so you know, this conversation has been very eye-opening and and I really do hope that with it, you not only get someone that reaches out in terms of, you know, just being able to get a little bit more information as to the efforts that your team is is doing and being able to continue this work and continue these conversations, but also that a lot of us can see that there's a lot of support, that we can provide support in very many different ways to ensure that our families are receiving language access in K through 12 schools. I'd like to ask you one last question with regards to uh, open doors for multicultural families and your endeavors what comes next for you guys what is the next piece to this if there is a next piece do we try again or is there is there a pause time right now before we continue i say we but you know in spirit i'm totally with you guys
1: no time for pauses no
0: (laughs) exactly
1: (laughs) i just took a 10-day vacation uh just so you know, with my family and we bought a old pop-up camper and traveled all the way down Arizona, uh, uh, you know, uh, down the coast camping along the way. And, and so there is time for pauses. Um, I'm just joking there, but, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, and I know Joy's about ready to go on a pause on her vacation right. come uh, this week. So other than the vacations, there's, there's no vacation in the, in the time of, uh, in the sense of actually the work we have to mm-hmm. keep this, um, on the forefront, we have to keep this in the in the eye of the public, and we have to keep in contact with our legislators to to let them know that yes, we intend to submit this next legislative season. However, um, what else can we do other than awareness and making sure those contacts are 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 nice and close and and strong? Is working with families and um, the, especially the families that we serve. So one of Ginger's dream. And I think Joy's dream as well was that open doors for multicultural families would one day have uh, a family advocacy training specifically for multicultural families.
0: Mm. And when
1: I say specifically, if you look at most advocacy training across our nation, it's geared for English speakers, usually middle class or higher uh, type of um, populations. Let me put it that way. Um, we uh, at Open Doors, we worked with D- Dr. Susan Wan, who is a mother that has a child with a developmental disability. And she helped us to uh, write curriculum specifically, advocacy curriculum specifically for the families that we serve, multicultural families. So she wrote a, a, a piece of uh, curriculum that I think is very popular called the TASH series. Uh, we used that as our foundation and then began to pull out certain sections of, the, of her curriculum and add um, topics or uh, lessons that would be more applicable to the multicultural families that we serve. We did that for about three to four months before we launched this training. So there was a lot of thought. There was a lot of uh, lived experiences that we brought into uh, the curriculum to make it that much more ac- applicable to the participants that we were serving. And in Feb- uh, on February 6th, we launched family leadership training at Open Doors for Multicultural Families. We had training for, I'm going to say 12 Saturdays, 36 hours of training that these families invested in, and we invested in them. Um, and- 18 super moms graduated on May 8th. Um, and I think it's an important point to mention that these 18 moms represented eight different cultures. Wow. And so the, the power of having multiple cultures represented there is that we, one, the participants learned about each other's cultures. They built bonds, um, but they also received a uh, curriculum in a way that was accessible for them and just like we met on Saturdays so, you know some nonprofits or or organizations want all the trainings midday or midweek sorry right but what we did in our interest form as we started to reach out to families we asked them when is the best day and time for you and then we accommodated around that and so you ask, what are, you know, what are we doing now? We are building an army of family advocates, and soon we're going to launch our self-advocacy training uh, for the multicultural population, and that's going to start in January. So what we're, what we're hoping here is that uh, when we start a second second cohort of our family leadership training, those uh, participants will graduate around December, around the time that we need a good group of family advocates to go alongside, or should I say, so we can go alongside of them and go to propose this HB 1153 in in its entirety. And so um, what I love about this bill, going back to HB 1130 and HB 1153 as well, it is a constituency bill. Mm. It, It wasn't a bill that came out of an agency it wasn't a bill that came out of a political party. It came from the people. And one of the things that I recommend to anyone else that is thinking about doing this, if it's from the people, it should stay with the people. There's tendencies in this process uh, where you could the constituents could submit a bill, but and then lose the bill because of all these changes that are going on, all these this bargaining going on between these caucuses. However, I, I'm thankful uh, that Tina Orwell really supported us to ensure that the constituents, the constituent was never left out of the bill. So we can continuously check back with families. We can- we check back with uh, different members, different stakeholders, as it was going through these changes to make sure and say, Hey, are you okay with this budget provides? Are you okay with this language and things of that nature? But that it, it, it's so important. It, it sounds simple. But it's so important to make sure that the families are always at the center. The student is always at the center in this particular bill.
0: I love it. I definitely personally am looking forward to following, um, you know, the re-presentation uh, of HB 1153. Um, I am I, just going to continue following because I, I definitely uh, would like to see something at a state level like that pass. My last question, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do?
2: Well, there are a few different options. um, And um, thank you again for highlighting that question. You can go to the ODMF, Open Doors for Multicultural Families website, specifically to the Advocacy and Civic Engagement Programs webpage, where they can learn more about Um, the family leadership training. They can also access the family feedback report that provides a lot of rich feedback from families, directly from families, what they said about what the challenges they're experiencing in schools. We also have an Instagram page, ODMF underscore ACE for advocacy and civic engagement. And so you can follow us on Instagram as well. And so we'll keep that posted, particularly related to
0: our legislative priorities and uh, this language access issue. Moses, Joy, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to speak with you guys here today. I truly appreciate your time and the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Midea.
1: Thank you, Mireya. And thank you, uh, all of your listeners that are continuing to support this great work.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as Brand the Interpreter, or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.